And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the, Cur- the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schreiner and Gar- Gary K. Wolf with very special guests, Charles Coleman Finlay and Cherie Renee Thomas on the Coot Street Podcast. And, and, and we're back. And we're back with, uh, with, with two delightful people who are in the process of handing off one of the most important jobs in science fiction. Uh, so let's start off by uh, I'll offer my gratitude uh, to Charlie Finley for having shepherded the magazine of fantasy and science fiction through the last several years. And my congratulations to Cherie for becoming the new editor, starting with which issue? March, April. That's soon. That means it's it's got to be in the can, right? Let's maybe go to the sort of, first of all, welcome Charlie. And w- sure, and glad welcome to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I, one thing I wanted to start with maybe is it's been five years since you started work on FNSF, Charlie. When you look back over the five years, how's the experience been? How did it f- think? How do you feel it might be when you started in 2015? And how do you feel about it now? Well, I think it's actually been closer to seven years. I agreed to do a guest issue. Um, at Worldcon, when I spoke to to um, Gordon Van Gelder, the magazine's publisher at Worldcon in 2013, and that was announced in um, December of that of that year, I think. And we had a reading period in January of 2014. Um, and so my first guest issue actually was the July August 2014 issue, and that was successful. Gordon was happy with it, and so he asked me to do another guest issue right away, which we. Uh, launched immediately, and I started reading for immediately. Um, and that was scheduled to be the March-April 2015 issue. Uh, and in January of that year, Gordon just announced that I would be taking over as the full-time editor instead. So it's been six full years as, of, of editing the magazine um, as the regular editor. But as far as my mental space and working on it, it's been a little more than seven. And uh, uh, when I look back on it, I had some really clear ideas of what I wanted to accomplish when uh, when I came on board. I wanted to switch over from postal submissions to electronic submissions. I wanted to try to get back to what I thought were FNSF's roots, where uh, they had um, always from the beginning emphasized really diverse voices and voices from around the world. Um, and I think some of that had been lost uh, just because of the postage issue that really restricted access as to who could submit and from how far away. So with electronic submissions, that lowered the bar. We got uh, submissions from all over the world. We um, uh, really opened up the magazine, I, I think, again, and made it much more comparable in terms of content to some of the really the most interesting things that were happening in the online magazines, um, but in the context of the FNSF tradition. So that was what I wanted to do from the very beginning. I, I think we accomplished that. I'm really happy with the work we did. You, you talk about the FNSF tradition, and I'll come to Sheree in just a moment, but what did you at the time feel like it was, and what do you feel like it is now, if it's changed at all? I think that, um, uh, you know, you look at uh, uh, J. Francis McComas and uh, Tony Butch, uh, Boucher and their, uh, how they started the magazine, and they wanted um, uh, kind of the widest range possible of genres, from uh, fantasy to science fiction to horror and within those, they 
uh, also published the widest range of materials from hard science fiction to kind of much more soft science fiction or idea driven um, uh, social satire kind of stories. Um, so that was one thing I really wanted to do was make sure that with the double issues, with the size of the issues that we have now, 250 some pages, I wanted to try and get the widest range of stories I could in every possible issue um, just to reflect the the breadth of what's going on in the genre right now. And then I think the other thing they did was they uh, went out of their way right from the very beginning of the magazine to look for new writers and new voices. You see that in the first issue where they published the first published story by Winona McClintock, um, uh, a writer who became associated with the magazine for you know, the following decade or so. She isn't well known today, but um, you know, very early on, they brought on Miriam Allen DeFord, Margaret St. Clair, uh, Mildred Klingerman, Carol M. Schwiller, Kit Reed. Uh, um, so all these writers who I think became identified with the magazine um, and, uh, and they began publishing translations uh, very early on in the history of the magazine, originally in the context of, you know, Kurd Laswitz, Jules Verne, Anton Chekhov, mm-hmm. famous writers, but they switched to contemporary writers early on. So, um, I wanted to bring that back to the magazine. And during my tenure, we you know, published writers from the Philippines, from Malaysia, from Japan, from China, from Nigeria, from South Africa, uh, from Brazil and Ecuador, uh, so uh, from Cuba. So all of these, I think, were, were part of, of just taking that original idea of the magazine and then pushing it out to what it means in the 21st century. And my vision of the magazine hasn't changed much since the beginning. I just think my understanding and appreciation of it has grown um, over time. Okay. Now, Sheree, it feels a bit like the, like an episode of Doctor Who where we're regenerating from the ninth doctor into the 10th doctor. And now you get to be the, you know, the new editor of fantasy and science fiction, which is an incredibly exciting thing. When did you first become aware of the magazine? What, what's your connection to it? Um, I saw it in a uh, grocery store, I believe, when I was a kid. My mom, uh, Mrs. Thomas, um, was kind enough to purchase it for me after I asked her several times. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so I guess that's my earliest uh, memory. Unfortunately, I cannot remember the exact cover, but I know it was enough to make me stop amongst all the other magazines <laughs> and say, I want that. Um, my parents were both science fiction um, fans. And um, so that was just a part of the household anyway, that and horror, lots of, lots of horror. Um, they also um, read, my mom in particular read Omni magazine. Um, so I would read after her as well. So it's just like, you know, like many other fans, I came to it, through it by reading good stories um, that made me want to explore more work like that. So I'm, I'm curious, Cherie, because I wonder when you first got a sense that magazines were different from one another. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm way older than any of you. And I can remember I'm, you know, when FNSF was the literary magazine, Galaxy was the satirical magazine, Analog was the hard SF magazine. And I wonder if other readers, I mean, Charlie, you were kind of talking about this 
wanting to establish a separate identity. But I'm wondering at what point readers become aware that magazines have personality. When did that happen to you, Sheree? I mean, when for me, it was a matter of um, not really thinking about the magazine as having a different personality because I didn't like subscribe to all the magazines. Yeah. Um, I was more of a book reader. I wasn't even allowed really to um, indulge in comics because my parents wouldn't consistently go and get those comics for me. <laughs> There's no point if you can't keep the whole set. This was before yeah. everyone fell in love with graphic novels, uh, before <laughs> Mouse and, and everything like that. So if you didn't catch it, on the right day, you were out of luck, right? Um, so I was a, a child who was mostly in the stacks. That's that was my experience of the of the genre. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And for me, um, ex- exploring the range of stories, um, um, I got a sense that there was there were a lot of vistas that I could be exploring. I mean, one of the first writers I actually genuinely loved that was not gothic. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I believe it was Ray Bradbury. It's just something about the lyricism of his writing, um, the way he created characters on the page um, that was that stood out for me. Mm-hmm. That stood out for me in terms of his storytelling. And it showed me that this was a genre that wasn't just about great ideals, interesting ideals, novel ideals, um, but also craft and and um, someone who seemed to have a, uh, the same love for for the way that he presented the stories to his readers as the other writers that we were told we should read, right? <laughs> yeah. So that that was um that was a very important um part I think of my journey um in terms of exploring like you know of course Susan Cooper and Mary Stewart the Crystal Cave and um Madeline Lingo and all the other um wonderful uh works Peter S Beagle um but in addition to looking at the comparing those kinds of storytellers and writers to the golden age writers which I could find those books um all over the library, right? Uh-huh. Um, different tone, a different, um, a different kind of energy to it. Um, so yeah. that, that, that's, it seems to well, me it's always been the case that there are writers that I associate more with FNSF. I mean, in the last fifteen years or so, Mary Rickert seems to me to be an FNSF writer, even though I know she's published a lot of other places. But th- I, th- I think she got started there, didn't she, Charlie? She did. Her first pro publication was in FNSF, "The Girl Who Ate Butterflies," yes. in I think nineteen ninety nine. Um, I think FNSF, more than other magazines, did that. They would establish relationships with writers and then just publish them. I don't want to say exclusively, but more often than those writers would appear other places. And so, you know, today, Albert E. Cowdery has published 80 stories, and I think every one of them has been in FNSF. Mm-hmm. Mm. One thing that I was thinking is both, both, both of you, Charlie and Cherie, started off as writers and still are, Charlie as a regular contributor to FNSF. And I'm curious because uh, how did you, Cherie, see the magazine, if you're aware of it in this way, as a writer and as a possible contributor? How did it look over the last decade, you know, when you were trying to place stories in the world? Um, it wasn't a place I sent stories. <laughs> uh-huh. It wasn't, um, I would look and see the table of contents and see who was in it. Um, and then I would move on. Um, it wasn't necessarily because I didn't think those writers were amazing and wonderful. They absolutely were. I just didn't see where my writing fit into the pages of the magazine. So is one of the challenges in a way for you as a new editor looking forward with this 70 year tradition behind you, um, to see how you can change that perception to see, to persuade people that writers like you 
are welcome in the magazine, people who didn't think they maybe belonged in it? Well, I think that part of part of the thing is when you have a changing of the guard, um, whoever is holding the door open is going to get bum rushed, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> Which Charlie could speak more intimately about that process. Amen. <laughs> the person who opened the door electronically, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, and so everyone is going to try to send something just to, just a test to see. Yeah. There is a change in the terms of the aesthetic and the um, the kinds of stories that that the publication is interested in. Um, so I'm anticipating a, um, a deluge um, and, <laughs> and gathering forces for that. Um, I've gathered uh, readers because unlike Gordon and unlike Charlie, I have no intention of reading 1,200 stories <laughs> a month by myself. <laughs> I, um, I'm not a glutton for pain. Um, but, um, I do, I do believe that one of the ways that people can feel welcome is if they see, um, you know, um, slightly different things. And one thing I will say, um, of course I've been reading the stories that Charlie, um, had already purchased, right. For the publication and, you know, and just making a list of myself, the stories that I just, as just reading as readers, like as a reader, right. Um, if your eyes are open and they're full of sense of wonder and you're waiting to be transported away with the storytelling and all these writers are wonderful. There's some stories that, that I, you know, resonate a bit more with me than others, but you know, I feel like we have, um, a similar sensibility about what makes a good, fun, interesting story. Right. Um, I just might be a little more on the edges of, <laughs> of the borders of it. Um, I also like a little more horror. I know we don't do a lot of horror, but um, I do like horror. And we both enjoy poetry. Um, so I've mm-hmm. you know, enjoyed, uh, and I published Mary Soon Lee and others um, that I've seen in the pages um, of FNSF. So um, I'm feeling good about that. Uh, <laughs> I, I Before I became editor of the magazine, I had read uh, Cherie's anthologies. And so she was an editor whose work I already liked as a reader and as a, an aspiring editor. Um, so I think that um, uh, I can't imagine a better person to hand it off to just in terms of sensibility and some of the things I was trying to do with the magazine. When um, Gordon told me who he had found next, I felt mm-hmm. like it was uh, um, uh, just an excellent, it was the right development. It was the right advancement for the magazine. One of the things that I think, um, I, I, th- I said this to you earlier when we chatted, Cherie, but uh, the, the Dark Matter anthologies were a cla- really good historical uh, archaeology and science fiction and changed the way a lot of us looked at it. So that's, so, so this having a historical sensibility like that uh, seems to be important when you're dealing with a magazine, even though the term, which I've heard FN, used to describe FNSF, the term legacy magazine sounds to me like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it means, yes, there's a genuine literary tradition to be upheld. On the other hand, it sounds like eh, you can get into Harvard because you're grandpa. And I don't think you want to do that. I don't think you want to recreate the FNSF of the 1950s, do you? Well, I think um, it's not a, it's not a sense of a legacy. No one no one has a guaranteed spot. And one of the things I really admire about um, what Charlie said is that, unlike some other places, he did not um, solicit writing. He yeah. said that every single issue came through the came through uh-huh. the, the portal, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. you know, the writers sent their work 
themselves, right? Which is wonderful. Um, it says a great deal about the legacy of FNSF because people want to be published there, even some of our, you know, most established, you know, beloved writers. Um, when um, just recently my daily paper did an interview um, of Gordon and I about, you know, this new part of the journey and the covers that they included, which is wonderful. I've never seen the, um, the newspaper do it here. They put the covers over their masthead, like it was over the, the name of the commercial appeal. And one of the covers there that's in the article includes the one that featured Sammy R. Delaney's um, story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just thought it was a wonderful selection because that means that Chip wanted to send his story to FNF. You know what I mean? When, when that popped up, when that story popped up in the submission queue, I had no advance notice it was coming. It just showed up in the queue. And I literally fell out of my chair. I was like, I double checked. I was like, no, this is really, you know, from Chip. And it was... Um, blew my mind and it was one of my most thrilling moments as an editor. I'm looking forward to that that, um, experience. And that's the thing about editing, right? You, um, not everyone wants to be an editor, right? It's a community, community project. It's a collaborative, um, enterprise and it's a great deal of labor, um, as well. And when people trust you with their art and their vision, um, you want to, you want to do good by it, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I'm just looking forward to the moments when I can look in that portal and say, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To me, I was talking to my mom and I I have to mention her because I mean, without, without her and my dad, I don't know if this would be my journey, Um, but they already created such a, um, a love for genre. There wasn't a sense of that. It was some other thing or is this a lesser child or what have you. Um, And Thinking about the fact that I probably saw it in a Kroger, maybe a Walgreens. I don't remember. <laughs> but, you know, when you could find, when they used to have a lot more horror magazines. I know, when you could actually find magazines and yeah. shops. I actually went because this this um, big article dropped today and went to um, my favorite bookstore and picked up the very last copy of fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> they sold out all the others. And, um um, I saw analog on, on there, right? Mm-hmm. And um, some of the other magazines. And I mean, that's pretty much what it was like when I, when I um, so there were a lot more of them, I remember. Um, and there was like um, the comics as, w- as well, right? The Archie comics and all those things. Um, those seem to be gone, but FNS remains. And I just, this, this idea of b- being full circle is just still, I'm still kind of thinking about it. Um, it's just amazing. I mean, I met Gordon the first time in 1999. <laughs> you, were, you were at Clarion, wasn't it? Yeah, I was at Clarion West. Um, I was a student there. I was also editing Dark Matter at the time, at the same time I was at Clarion. Um, and some of the other instructors were there. Of course, Octavia E. Butler. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Crest was an amazing first week um, instructor. Greg Bear and Howard Waldrop. I was really excited wow. to meet wow. them. I was excited to meet them because I remember reading their works in Omni. And I remember being confused about Howard because you know how writers have a kind of a signature voice or mm-hmm. a certain area that they like to mind and explore, right? It's part of their obsessions, right? Um, well, Howard, I couldn't keep track of him. <laughs> <laughs> 
he, he would do alternative history. He would do, you know, there's just all kinds of different stories. And so the idea of finally meeting the person, the, the, the real person behind all of these stories was really exciting for me. Um, and just to have Gordon, Greg, Howard, okay. and Octavia in that space. And of course, um, Gwyneth Jones was new to me and she was fantastic. Um, she was fantastic. She, she had a lot to do in that last week. <laughs> <laughs> wiped out um, in 99 but um to me it feels like i i went full circle for real you know yeah, yeah yeah let me ask you if you were to imagine this seems almost like an unfair question if you could imagine being in 2026 or 2030 or whenever it might be and the time comes to hand over to editor number 11 of fantasy and science fiction which at some time in the future will happen what would you be look th- think about it now what would you want to be able to look back on having done? What mm-hmm. feels like the thing you want to achieve? Because each editor has in, in time, and I've particularly read, you know, been present for when Charlie's been editor, when Gordon was editor, when Chris Rush was editor, and so on. Uh, I was reading back when Ed, Ed Furman was editor. What would you like to be the thing that you could look back on having done with this, this, this thing that's being put into your hands for the moment? Hmm. It's still being formed in my mind. This is, this is still very new to me. But if I were to just wave a wand and think about it, one, it still exists. <laughs> yeah, that's I didn't crash the rocket ship, right? <laughs> that's, that's dream one. Two, um, I can continue on the, um, the legacy that's already been built by Charlie and Gordon and, and Chris and all the other um, um, wonderful editors that um, – we still have this, the dedicated, loyal people um, who's, you know, who are coming to are telling me, you know, my dad had, you know, he's a lifelong subscriber. He has volume one all the way up until the day he passed. Um, other people, I've, you know, I've, I've, I, you know, people I didn't even know are reaching out. I mean, people I know, but I didn't know they read FNSF. They are subscribers um, and wow. are telling me about their. I want to be able to add to those numbers, like bring more people to. Um, to the family, you know, to keep supporting it. Um, right now, um, Charlie created the social media, I believe, right, Charlie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah there, was, there was no social media when I took over, so we built up the Twitter and the Facebook accounts and mm-hmm. uh, really began to engage with readers a lot more that way um, than had been done in the past. So I think there are about 4,000 people following, which is wonderful. Um, you know, add more people to the conversation, um, I need to put my get my hands on a, a full set if I can <laughs> if I can get one of of um, of the um, magazine just so that I can um, dive in and out as well and um, just explore that you know as I'm adding I would love to be able to add wonderful new names to the mm-hmm. long list of the um, beloved writers and the significant groundbreaking work that we think of. When you think of FNSF and just add more people to that, um, it is a place of honor to be published. And particularly if it's your first publication, my goodness, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, it's quite of introduction to the, to the, to the science fiction world. Um, I think there's also a historical legacy in who reads FNSF. And, and you mentioned your dad. And um, uh, I, I remember I had, a, I think it was the first magazine I subscribed to. But they used to run, I've talked to Gordon about this, and I don't think he knew where it came from even. In the 1950s and early 60s, on the back of each issue, there'd be a testimonial ad of famous people who were at FNSF. 
One of them right. was an actress named Spring Byington. And one of them was Louis Armstrong. And ever since then, I've wondered, did Louis Armstrong really read FNSF? Well, you know, anybody the, else? the founding editor of the magazine was Lauren Spivak, right? I'm sure I'm Same guy who found, found Meet the Press on TV. Yeah. That was exactly it. So he... Um, uh, through the Mercury Press, uh, which he was involved with, and with Meet the Press, just knew he knew everyone. He was a person who knew everyone, and I'm uh-huh. sure that he sent out sample copies or asked people for testimonials or or got involved that way. I I've just always assumed that that was somehow a uh, a function of his connections. It could be. Um, uh, and the, you read the testimonials; they sound like people who have at least. Um, uh, given the magazine a look over, you know, they, yeah. they aren't um, kind of bland testimonials that could apply to any magazine. They sound like they're about FNSF. I'm surprised. There are a lot of musicians who were, you know, big fans of the genre. And I'm, I'm thinking of like um, Ishmael Reed. I'm thinking of Sun Ra. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of um, uh, the writer uh, Henry Dumas and others. Um, Amira Baraka. Uh, yeah. Well, so and that goes the other way too, like, you know, uh, um, Chip Delaney started out as a folk musician, right? He played once with uh, Bob Dylan very early in his career at the same coffee shop. So I think that those interest in music, we often find people, you know, creative people are interested in more than one art, but I think music and science fiction have a lot of, of overlap. Just so Charlie, you Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to clarify. My dad didn't have a full set, or else I would have his full set. Though. Oh. <laughs> I've, been, I've been contacted by people and talked with people since this announcement who have told me um, stories about how their relationship to the, to the magazine. Yep. I was going to ask, Charlie, you were a very frequent contributor to, to the magazine before you became editor. And then it obviously editing the magazine overwhelmed all your available time. How was it segueing from someone who wrote for it to someone who was too busy to write for it? Well, you know, I think um, uh, I missed the writing. I carved out time to continue to write. And one of the things I did do was I think every editor before me who was also a writer, um, uh, Boucher, Abram Davidson, Chris Rush, they all published some of their own material in the magazine. Mm. Um, but I felt like as an editor, I didn't want to do that. There are so many voices right now. There are so many people who uh, deserve a chance to be uh, heard in a, a forum like FNSF. And so I wanted to make sure that I made more room for for those voices. So I deliberately even when I was writing stuff, kept it away from Gordon and kept that part of my life separate from the magazine. Um, I think the question was, how would, did I handle that transition? And it was um, uh, easy. You know, I like learning new things. I like picking up new skills. And so I had never edited. I'd edited nonfiction before and had edited corporate kinds of things, but I'd never edited fiction in this way. Uh, and so it was really fun to throw myself into it um, and to uh, get advice from all the great editors that I knew uh, and then to try to learn my own path through it. I, I loved that transition. And how does that feel as a thought for you, Cherie? Because you've just had you know, your most recent collection, Nine Bar Blues, come out from Third Man Books. You, you appear to be, have been writing more than ever before. And now you're moving into this environment where 
at the very least, this new job is going to consume presumably an enormous amount of time. Yeah, that was one of my reservations. <laughs> I was thinking, Charlie's leaving because he wants to write. You want to yeah. write, now you're joining. What, is that? what does yeah. that look like, right? Um, um, <laughs> actually, I actually told um, Gord I had to think about it. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, and then when I, you know, kind of consulted, I consulted my, my, my betters. And they were like, are you freaking crazy? <laughs> Have you lost your cat rabbit mind? <laughs> you are willing to turn down the opportunity to add your voice to a legacy publication like FNSF. You're always saying there should be more people in the room, more people at the table. And now the universe has presented you with this opportunity. And you're like, I don't know. I think I want to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, did, I did have a, 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 some moments. And then I thought, well, I know what this, I know what it's like to, to edit a lot of, of work. Um, I know what that's like um, for um, um, one publication um, that will be coming out next fall, hallelujah, <laughs> that I co-edited with two uh, good friends. We received, um, just for that one anthology, about 757 submissions, which we all read, all voted on each story. And so I know what that process is like. What I find is that editing and writing are two different headspaces. You, you're wearing different crowns then, and um, you, you need to order your day so that you're maximizing both of those things. And so I was talking with Charlie about, you know, his process and with, and with his wife, Ray, and how, you know, how they kind of organize things mm -hmm. um, because I'm, you know, I'm making some changes in my own process as well. And so for me, it will be a matter of becoming even more organized, um, devoting my time to the, um, to the editorial and the teamwork part of it, right? Um, yeah reading at a, you know, specific times and then giving myself these other hours where I know that I'm already working on me and what I want to have in the world. Um, and if I work on it each day, it should be fine. Um, so I guess for me, it'll most likely be, um, I'll be rising earlier than I'm accustomed to <laughs> <laughs> training that used to, to be ready in, um, in the wee wee hours before the sun sun rises, um, working on my work so that when I greet the day of FNSF, I, I already feel full. I already, you know, I don't feel as if um, I've lost something. You know, I'm moving, I'm moving into the other stories. Which the other thing that gets lost in the asking of these questions is really how much fun it is to be able to read um, all these different examples of of the human imagination, right? Um, and when you've been editing, which I've been editing um, for quite a while. You get very accustomed to moving past the things that aren't going to work for you, right? right. I was going to ask that question of you. Actually, I, I wanted to ask that question of, of all three of you because, Jonathan, you're a short fiction editor as well. And we do have young writers listening to this podcast, at least occasionally. And one of the things that they must have in mind is how much of a chance do you give a story? It's a story by a writer you don't know, let's say, or even by one you do know. Um, and you, nobody with that many submissions, can read every story all the way through. Oh, God, no. Mm -mm. <laughs> What's the end point? At what point do you say this isn't going to work? Is it page one, page 15? Do you have page any one. sense? <laughs> page one? Yeah. Page one. Definitely really? page one. Paragraph page two sometimes. Like. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the first paragraph lets you know, nope. Okay. That's not going to work. But, but now, the, so I want to balance that, okay? Because um, 
one of the things that happened while I was editor was a third of the stories that we published in the magazine during my time as editor were from writers who had never appeared in the magazine before. Uh-huh. And yeah. almost 10%, you know, an average of six stories a year were first published stories, first pro sales. Wow. Um, so the uh, um, September, October issue, I think, had two first pro sales in it. Um, so often... Uh, uh, one of the reasons why you read the stories and do the work is because you want to find those new voices. You're yeah. looking for yeah. the writers who who grab you and make you pay attention, who have something to say that no one else is saying. So if you're if you're a writer out there, you you have a chance. There's always room for excellence. There's always new room for fresh perspectives. We're not just looking for things that have been done before, but mm-hmm. we're, we're looking for things that are done well. We're looking for things that are exceptional. And I think too many beginning writers just start out by trying to copy what's been done before. They don't start out trying to be exceptional. They start out trying to be familiar. And that's that's where you can get rid of stuff in just a page because you've seen it so yeah. many times before. Could and I actually put a, a thought to you that, in fact, the true metric of the health of a magazine like FNSF or any of the magazines at all, the real metric is how many fresh new voices they bring in regularly to, fill, to, to grow the future of the field. You know, a, any mag, anything, an anthology series, a magazine that's not bringing in new, new work by new writers isn't really doing its fundamental job, it seems to me. Well, we're going to have um, in the future a new column that's going to explore topics like that, um, looking at the data. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do you really have to know someone? Um, do you have to be an award winner already? Right? Um, what are the what are the, what are your odds of getting um, your new work in in these marquee publications? So we'll see mm-hmm. <laughs> about mm-hmm. what, what that what that ends up being. Um, let, let me ask another question of all three of you, which is kind of the opposite of the one I just asked. Uh, let's say you get a submission from an extremely well-known author who considers himself or herself to be doing you a favor to even submit. And you know that this name on the cover would sell more copies and you know that it would uh, increase the profile of the magazine. But the story really isn't that good. <laughs> you mean the kind of situation where Chip Delaney sends you his oh, exactly. worst story ever? <laughs> I was... I actually know the Chip Delaney story you're talking about, and I think it's terrific. No, I'm well, talking I'm joking. It won the Locus Award, so yeah, uh, yeah exactly. No, I'm, no, no, I'm joking. Sorry, Chip Delaney did not send FNSF their worst story ever. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, it's that feeling. Like I edited a book called Eclipse Two, mm. and I had a story by Ted Chang fall into my e- email box, and I had this moment before I read it. Before I read it, going, is this going to be the worst Ted Chang story of all time? Oh, the first, and I'm going to have to reject it. And it turned and out it to was, be ex- right. It was exhalation, right? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, you reject them, right? Isn't that the, the true answer, Sharia yeah. and Charlie? Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say that it's not about it being necessarily. Sometimes they aren't aren't good, I, but sometimes it's not the right fit. Right. And sometimes it, it doesn't. It, it may be really good, but not for what you're trying to do. Oh, good point. Um, all of these writers are professional. So I don't know who's sending out work saying, I'm doing you a favor, <laughs> when they probably could get paid um, a lot of money, maybe, you know, if they made a screenplay out of it or right. something, I don't know, right? Um, or a tele, you know, a teleplay or a series or net stream, you know, Netflix original. But I suspect that they've they've had work turned down before, and um, they are accustomed to being edited. Maybe one or two of our you know writers are never edited. Right. Yeah. 
Kids are always heavy, but um, <laughs> but um, I think they're I think they'll be okay. Yes, the answer is if it doesn't if the story is not going to be a, of service to the author's legacy or to the publications, then you 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 must pass on. That's absolutely right. Um, and most writers get that and are extremely gracious about it. Um, uh, and we'll come back and try you again. I only have. You know, um, I can only think of one writer in particular uh, who told me that I was a fool for rejecting their story um, and, that, and that they were going to send it to the New Yorker next. And I would see it in publication when it appeared in that magazine. And I'm still waiting uh, for it to show up. Um, but those kinds of instances are really rare. Uh, and, and most writers, they they know how the the um, they know how publishing works, and they're they're very gracious and very kind hearted, and mm. and uh, keep sending you work. I think it also helps on how you pass on work. Um, I've been in another um, situation where, you know, I had a, a partner who wasn't particularly kind about, <laughs> about <laughs> how they wanted to say no, and you know, we had to have a conversation about that because. I, I'm not so far in this journey of my own where I'm become, you know, I, you know, cannot be rejected. That's, has, that I've reached uh-huh. that stage. If you ever do reach that stage. And, um, I certainly don't, I'm haven't been, you know, writing so long that I've forgotten what it feels like to get a no or get, as we call my, my late friend, Liz Roberts would say the ding, ding pass. <laughs> you know? Um, so you want to be gracious. You want to be respectful. You don't want to be dismissive and, uh-huh as we say in the South Sadidi about it, you know, so that also goes a long way. Um, one of the things I was telling Charlie about that it's been um, wonderful to see is all the love that he's received just because he gives a special kind of rejection. <laughs> um, one, you know, that, you know, makes people feel like they can keep going. Maybe don't send the same story to him, well, but could. you can send it, fix it and send it somewhere else, you know? Um I don't want to leave people feeling broken. I, th- I think one of the kindest things that uh, that I've seen that Jane Yolen does uh, is that she will cheerfully put up. She just did last week on her uh, Facebook page that I got another three rejections today. And the first time you read that, you think this is Jane Yolen getting rejections, but she always uh, has gotten them and she knows how to deal with them. And I guess at a certain point in your profession, you realize that uh, some of these things are not going to hit the first time out. I've gotten rejections in the morning and acceptance in the evening. Neutralized. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> we're, we're long past the day, and this supposedly is a story that had to do, deal with astounding science fiction back mm-hmm. in the 50s. And it was Robert Sheckley or some writer back when there were several mail pickups during the day who swore that he mailed off his story in the, after, in the morning mail and got the rejection in the afternoon mail the same day. <laughs> <laughs> that was Gordon, right? No. <laughs> yeah, Gordon lightning fast. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One thing about the new I'm sorry. Did I interrupt somebody? Oh, I was going to say in terms of developing new writers, one of the things I see as a reviewer are a number of really interesting and exciting new writers who don't seem to feel much need to move toward short fiction at all. And you see a lot of debut novels or debut novellas starting, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, well, okay, River Solomon is an example. There's hardly any short fiction. There's the one novella, one story I know of, and and the novel. And when you've got somebody that talented who wants to write novels, do you feel that you should or ought to try to convince them to try some short fiction? No. Nope. 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 Okay. Nope. <laughs> easy, easy answer to that. 
No, if the spirit moves them, yes, um, absolutely. We, in, the, in the next future issue, you're going to see a story um, by a writer who has been writing novels and hadn't published a short story in a while. But she said that um, this is one that came to her that she, you know, really wanted to write and share. So I feel like if, it's, if the spirit moves you, then by all means, but I'm not going to be trying to convince people <laughs> to write a short story just because. Um, so I, I feel like the short story is an amazing um, form and it, it's, uh, it should be respected in its own right, right? Good point. Um, and I guess the same point in, in reverse is when people constantly bombard Ted Chang with questions about a novel, his answer is always the same. When one comes to me, I'll write it. Yeah, I think that's it. And, and if somebody can be successful as a novelist, I certainly encourage them to do that. It's a much better way to make a living as a writer than trying to <laughs> well, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Sheree, the FNSF has a, and you mentioned earlier, or touched on it earlier a little, FNSF has a fabulous tradition of, you know, write, writing wonderful nonfiction. There have been major columns that have been part of the history of the magazine. There have been long-term reviewers. Do you see that side of the magazine evolving and changing as you move into this 10th editorship? Well, we're definitely going to, you know, continue the, the wonderful columns. I think the readers enjoy them. They look forward to them. Um, I'm adding a new one, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to find um, some, you know, some other voices to see, you know, you know, what, what else we can add to the conversation, but we're definitely continuing with the, the columns and also the competition, the humor competition. Oh, good. <laughs> um, that people definitely enjoy as well. Yeah. Let me ask you then this, and maybe I'll start with Charlie and then we'll come to, back to you, Sheree. When you, in t 2015, Charlie, what did you see as being, I mean, it sounds like it was submissions, but what did you see as being the biggest challenge facing FNSF as part of the genre as part of magazine publishing and magazines in the genre? Um, I don't know. I think part of it was that um, FNSF, because they had stayed with male-only submissions so long, felt like they were um, moving out of the discussion of short fiction, just out of people's awareness um, due to the rise of, of electronic magazines and the fact that places like Asimov and Analog had even started taking electronic submissions. And so I wanted to come back in and, and just say, you know, uh, FNSF is still here. It's still relevant. And the, the legacy, this tradition of uh, great fiction continues. Um, and so part of that was updating the way we took submissions and the kinds of submissions that, that we were looking for. And then the other part of it was developing our online connection with readers and making that stronger. Um, uh, Cherie talked about her dad, you know, being a lifelong reader of FNSF, but I also felt like I was editing for the people who were just discovering the magazine for the first time, um, that there are uh, uh, people who don't even, aren't even aware that, that short fiction magazines exist or that they, uh, uh, so many people I know, their first encounters with FNSF came before they ever heard of the magazine. They read Starship Troopers or saw mm -hmm. them. They read The Flowers for Algernon. They read Harrison Bergeron. They read uh, uh, all these writers and stories um, uh, in other places or saw them, you know, adapted for film or television. Um, 
And uh, they weren't aware that they came from a magazine originally. And so I saw that all of those people were a potential audience, a potential readership. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find more ways to connect with them again. Um, and, And I think that we've done some of that. We have a lot of new subscribers. We have a lot of new subscribers to the ebook edition of the magazine. So uh, these the legacy readers are there. You know, I just got a note today from someone who's been reading the magazine 45 years and said he's sad to see me go. Um, uh, but we also have all these new readers who are coming in, and, and uh, I wanted to edit something that would appeal to them too. Okay. And Sheree, how about you? What do you see as the challenges from that you're aware of at the moment, right at the very beginning of this whole process, facing you, know, you and the magazine? Um, well, one of the challenges, I, we were talking about that a little earlier. I think that um, I think there's so many wonderful stories that have been published in FNSF, FNSF, and I'm not so sure that reader, when it comes to, the, the, to handing out the roses while you're alive to, period, um, that those stories... Um, I guess they're having the conversations that, that you would think they would normally have. Um, I don't know. Charlie might feel differently about it, but I just feel like it's it's a it's a difficult it's a different dynamic when you have magazines that are all online and free right. uh, all year long, and that when awards time comes, you, you know if there any of the stories are recommended, anyone can go and look at it immediately, right? Um, Whereas if you go and look on the list and you're looking for the ones that are they're nominated from the print magazine, unless you're a subscriber or you're just a very dedicated and thorough person who wants to make sure you have everything that's been you know nominated in your library so you can decide, you're already you've already got the, the you know the deck stacked against you. So I'm just kind of curious about that. I know that some writers do post their stories on their own websites or what have you. Um, around award season, um, but that's something we'll be thinking about because I do think a lot of these writers um, should have a larger audience. I think the Hugo packets have been very helpful in that in the last several years. Um, well, but by the time you get to the Hugo packet, it's already too late if you haven't been nominated. If you haven't been nominated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Correct. That's correct. I mean, I would have thought to me there are a couple of big challenges for FNSF in 2020, and I say this as a reader for – 40 years or more myself, right? And someone who obviously has an affection for the magazine and, you know, lifelong good memories and all this sort of thing. And that is, I think that the iconic design is wonderful, but I wonder if it needs some refreshing. Yeah. But also this this question, which is, how do you make it work in a digital world? And I know every magazine in the world has struggled with this and there's no reason why FNSF would be any different at all. But the thing that makes an award story in 2020, and this is what you're touching on, Sheree, is the ability to be accessed easily and shared virally. So, I mean, you know, right now, if a story appears on X website, I share a link to somebody who shares a link to someone who shares a link to someone. And even if you have to pay, it's there. So, you know, is, that seems to me that that's the big challenge to get because I kind of feel, it makes me sad to say that where 20 years ago there were a clear group of leaders now of magazines and FNSF was prominently one of them. There's now a bigger mass and it's harder to get heard in that group. And so I wonder if this, this digital question is the one that needs to be struggled with the most. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Cherie. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say that um, I don't think that we should always mistake awards for readership because I'm not sure that the, the um, uh, widest range of readers 
are always nominating or participating in um, the awards. That's true. Uh, and so I think that's one you know, measure you can look at. But I think, you know, just looking at like, are we reaching new subscribers? Are we reaching, you know, a larger audience is also an important question. Um, and so that was just the point I wanted to make. Uh, uh, I'm sorry that none of the writers I published, none of the stories I published got nominated for the Hugo uh, Award during my time as editor, because some of them really deserved it. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and we had our share of, you know, World Fantasy Awards. And uh, the very first issue I published, Delia Don Johnson, and she won the Nebula Award for that mm-hmm. story. So, you know, we had recognition from these other awards. But I, I'm, I, I just don't know that that's that we should make that mistake. Do you think? But, but don't you that talks to the very point, Charlie? Because you're, what you're saying is that you've published, you, you know, you've put together. Six odd years of the magazine. There's been some, there's been some, some genuinely wonderful work in there. You've been acknowledged at juried awards where juries are given copies of the work. The work the award where it's not been able to break through, unfortunately, is the one that's a mass public one where having a shared in you know uh, ability is an advantage. So that suggests there's at least something to think about in that space. Yeah, there is. I just don't. Uh think that that should be the only perspective. Oh, no. Do you think there's a generation of readers who simply has begun to believe that short fiction should be free? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that answers my question. (laughs) Let me put this way. Can can I interject here and say, as a father of teenagers, there are people out there who think that all media should be free. Good point. Or at least some trickly subscription you don't, uh, you know, you're not aware of. You don't notice that you're paying for access to the new album by whomever, you know, because you get it on Spotify and it just shows up or a thing on Netflix or whatever else. And there's not an equivalent for that really for fiction. You have to make a decision to acquire it or find it. So, uh, but, but yes, I'm sure there's an element of people ex- who are accustomed to that, but I don't think it's a terminal barrier. And I think that, you know, FNSF, which has this extraordinary history, right, and, and produces such wonderful work, you know, already has a prominent place, but it's just that thing of keeping that at the forefront and fresh. I think it's also another issue for us is a, a general issue for the industry. Um, yeah. Some of our, our readers and fans are, they're, they're aging, they're, they're elders. Um, and so it's a question of, continuing to bring in new audiences yes. who can say that, hey, I've been reading you 40 years, right? But starting in the year 2021, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, sorry, go ahead. What I was going to say just quickly was uh, one of the things Charlie said much earlier in the conversation was that he'd made a point when he became editor of FNSF not to solicit work. And I think that's an interesting and a very responsible and reasonable thing to do. But Sheree, as you move into that space and take up responsibility for the reins, do you feel that in order to attract a new, you know, another different different set of voices into the magazine, maybe it's worth soliciting some work to try and bring those people and let let them know they're overtly welcome? Because surely one of the ways you make a magazine fresher as well is bringing newer writers and their readers into you. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's like saying, oh, it's like saying you have a, <laughs> we have you, it's like posting a diversity uh, policy on your website and saying all are welcome and then just waiting. Yeah. 
um, to, to, to solve a problem. It's not even that it's a problem, but to expand your pool, you have to be proactive. You have to go out and seek. And um, yeah, so I think that is important to say, hi, you know, um, you, you probably know we've published a layer <laughs> or you probably, maybe you didn't know because I wouldn't assume necessarily that they would know if um, particularly if they're not subscribers, um, if they read her novels, that's one thing, but maybe they had no idea that, you know, um, she was published in FNSF as Charlie was mentioning earlier. So many wonderful works had mm-hmm. their first poems here and then, you know, were um, presented in other mediums and other ways. But, if you you know if you receive an um a, a, a invitation and say hey i'm looking for work that has like voices like yours then people take it seriously because everyone sees your press release right um yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that 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 connects to you you know um so i think those personal relationships and and just opening the door and also asking other people to to beat the drum and let them let them know that um that this is an, another place they can sit, can, they can consider with all the other wonderful places they can send their work to. Um, but they'll believe it when they see it. And they, you know, there's lots of wonderful things um, that's been published in the publication. But again, you know, it's a, um, it's a matter of letting them know, Hey, look over here too. Look over here too. <laughs> let, let, let me, let me, we're getting toward the end. Let me introduce an argument, which is both, um, a recognition of the history of the magazine and and I think possibly good news for the future. And that is maybe maybe the genres uh, or the meta genre, as, as I've heard the term used, have finally more or less caught off to what FNSF has been doing for a long time. Because as Charlie, you mentioned, early in the, the early years would publish horror science fiction stories like Richard Matheson. They'd publish C.S. Lewis. There were clear fantasy stories. There was hard SF like Heinlein. Um, and in the last several years, in the last 20 years, I've argued this in a book I wrote, the genres have just begun to bleed into each other. You can't really, you, you, you can find a corner of hard SF and a corner of heroic fantasy and a corner of splatter horror. But by and large, there are a lot of stories that fit into all or none of those categories. And those stories, it seems to me, have been pretty much welcomed throughout the history of FNSF. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a wonderful a story by a a writer named Brian Trent in our September-October issue, um, which uh, uh, The Ferryman's Dog, which mixes uh, Greek mythology and far-future science fiction, and they mesh perfectly together and tell a story I haven't seen anywhere else before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and there are other stories like that, but that one jumps to mind because it was so recent. And and those stories have a perfect fit for FNSF because we've always incorporated all the genres. Um, And so it's the perfect place to mix them. You mentioned something early about the art. <laughs> um, the art is, 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 it says golden era of science fiction often, right? Yeah. It, it's yeah. Um, oil paintings or a mixture of oil and di- digital. Um, my artist that um, Gordon, you know, loves, and they've done some really fine covers and art. But there's also been some other artists that have been introduced here and there. Um, so you may see some other covers. Um, as well, in addition to the the, the kinds of art that FNSF is, is known for and lets you know that you're looking at our volume. So, Charlie, I want to ask you two questions before we segue away. And the, the first is, your final issue as editor comes out in the new year. Do you have special big plans for that? Or is it just going to be 
the last issue as it would have been anyway, or the next issue anyway. It would just be the last issue. I, I really tried to uh, veer away from thinking about special issues or big issues, the the 70th anniversary issue aside. But um, overall, I tried to, to approach every issue as if it was a special issue um, and try to make sure that every issue, if it's the first copy of the magazine someone picks up, they're going to find something in it to fall in love with. They're going to find a story that stays with them for the rest of their lives. Um, and so I tried to do that in the January, February issue and, and uh, end my reign as, as the way I began, because that's what I was trying to do at the start as well. And, and with that sort of done, the follow-on would be, and so what's next? I understand you're taking time to write. What's coming from Charlie, Charlie Finlay in the coming year or two, do you think? Well, my wife, uh, Ray Carson, is a novelist, uh, uh, you know, a very successful one. And, and uh, we've been itching for a long time to work on a project. We've had a novel that we've been trying to write together for over a year. But between her deadlines for her projects or her tie-in novels um, or my deadlines for FNSF, we'll work on it for a little bit and then it gets put aside. And every time we have to to start over again and kind of get back into the characters and get back into the headspace. So the thing we're doing right now is we're just completely immersed in that new book. Um, and it's really exciting to work with each other. We've done it unofficially for a long time. She looks at every piece of short fiction I write. I read every draft of her books as she writes them. Um, but to kind of make that official and work on a project together is the first order of business. Sounds wonderful. And the, the corollary for you, Sheree, I guess, is, first of all, Nine Bar Blues is out in the world now. It came out earlier in the year. What, what's next for Sheree the writer? Oh, good news that I cannot announce. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I've been about to burst all this fall, so I'm just having to hold on, hold it tight as a drum for, for a little while longer. But fun things, fun things. Fun things. And do you have any plans, special plans for the first issue that you're going to have coming out in March? No, no special plans <laughs> for um, for it. As, as Charlie said, um, we're just continuing the good work, continuing it um, with new stories that we, uh, we hope that our readers will, will love as, as much as the others that they've, they've seen. Okay. Well, Charlie, I'd, I'd like to thank you personally for the last six or so, so years for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. You've made it, you've got through it. You didn't, it survived you, which is got to be <laughs> a good editor. Good sign. <laughs> all, all, and, all, always know, always good news when the bus driver gets off alive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck to you, Cherie. I hope that it is as exciting as it looks like it's going to be. It looks like it's going to be a really wonderful period of time and just the right sort of thing to do now. Thank you. This 2020 year is the most crazy year <laughs> ever. We should, we, should, we, should also, we should also mention in, in parentheses, isn't, isn't this year the 20th anniversary of the first Dark Matter anthology? It absolutely is, yeah. July 1st. <laughs> so you're, you're yeah. part of the history of the field already. Yes, yes, yes. The wonderful writers went on to do great things. I'm always... Um, when people mention dark matter, I always remind them it was the writers. Uh, and, you know, out of those collections, people were surprised winner, National Board, <laughs> National Book, um, uh, National, um, oh my gosh, I can't even talk. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, the National Book Award. National Book Award finalist. I'm looking at. I'm th- looking at the cover now and seeing seeing this wonderful writer's face right now, floating <laughs> above me. She's amazing. Um, I think what six time Bronze Stoker Award winners. Just just amazing writers who you know, and some who people didn't really know at the time, right. and they are you know titans in the field. So yeah, yeah I'm happy. I'm a, I'm a, a happy grandma, what have you. <laughs> <laughs> matter yeah okay well thank you sheree for making time to talk to us and thank you charlie for making time to talk to us today my pleasure thank you and until the next time out this has been the cood street podcast